from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Del Campbell. Dell grew up in a musical family in Ohio and was a musician himself. He branched out into audio engineering for radio and then got involved in the movie industry. It was while he was working at Warner Brothers that he ran into the Baha'i faith. His biggest project was starting up the Baha'i radio station WLGI. I started the interview by asking Dell where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. As a child, uh, of course, you don't. You only know what you know at that time, and I, I thought I had the best life. And then, as a teenager, I became a little restless, ready to move on, mm-hmm. see new things, and go new places, and visit new horizons. It was quite cold in the wintertime, quite hot and humid in the summertime. I guess the best time of year was spring and fall. But it was nice having four seasons, and, you know, we had uh, all kind of fruit trees, and so we always lived in a big home. We weren't suffering for anything. You know, it was a pretty good life. You grew up there through elementary school, junior high, high school? Yeah, I finished high school there. I did some college in Ohio, and I finished college in Chicago. My major was in communications with the radio and television minor to it. So I had a specialty that I was going for after high school, but, you know, I had a lot of breaks in between. Almost each year I had a break or something that would take me into a studio to do more or less like uh, internship work. And where did you intern? That was also in Chicago and different radio stations and smaller cities around Chicago. I also hosted a radio show there and for a couple of years during that time. So I got the technical background as well as the production background. The way that we would intern would be uh, we'd go in and get experience, sort of like college radio. You go in, you're on the air just for the experience, but they're also utilizing your service to, to be on the air. And what kind of show did you have? That was a sports program. We would uh, interview people in all facets of the sports arena, being that Chicago is a huge sports town. You know, you got the Sox, you got the Bears, you know, you got you got everything there. I mean, from high school, college, and the majors. We would also interview the wives and extended family members of, you know, any sports person. Uh, we would also interview their nutritionists or a nutritionist and doctors and people who had anything to do with sports medicine so that we could get a, a well-rounded view or understanding 
of what the life of an athlete was like before, during, and after. Did you have an interest in communications or radio while you were growing up in high school or younger? I was a musician. My dad was an artist, and my mom, she was a professional musician. My mom and two of her sisters, they had a group during her days, and they were pretty famous and popular. They were sort of like the Supremes, but they never went or cut any albums back then. It was from that influence that I got into music, and music is sort of a form of communications industry in a way because it has to utilize it because they're, they're like partners. It's sort of like when you're learning music, you also have to learn the technical part of things in order to to round yourself out a little and be a little bit independent. So it kind of gravitated from being, um, let's say, a music engineer into radio engineering and, and so forth. It went from radio to uh, TV to the movie industry. So did you play an instrument or did you sing when you were younger? Yeah, I grew up singing and then I learned I learned to play the guitar by myself. Were you in any bands or anything? I had uh, a couple brothers and we had professional group. We, we were called Fresh. Uh, we never uh, really cut anything. We did some recording. Whether you are a performing artist or whether you are an engineer, a technician, or a writer, it's pretty much the same industry. And... I had to decide if I wanted to stay in that industry at all. I decided to venture out, and by this time I had become a Baha'i because once I became a Baha'i, it caused me to do a tremendous amount of soul-searching about my next step in life. So I went to the house of worship and kind of stayed there for about three years, but only was going there for a couple of weeks. It turned out to be three years. I arbitrarily made a decision not to get back on the road and to do what I was doing at that time. Then I ended up doing Radio Baha'i from that point. Okay, so can you tell me the story of how you ran into the Baha'i faith? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, at least to me. I think everybody would say so about the way they run into the faith. But I was working at Warner Brothers Movie Industry. At the time, I was working as a payroll clerk assistant I have a relative named Walter Heath, who was a professional musician. When they got their contract with Warner Brothers, Walter, he would do the, uh, the show just before theirs. He's pretty well known as, as Walter Heath, and he, he did do an album. He, he and a young lady named Sue, at the time her name was Sue Papa, told me about the Baha'i faith. I think... What happened was the, the two of us, my brother-in-law and I, attended some firesides in Burbank that Walter took us to over at Joan and Sid Balkan's house. But when I found out this was what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a Baha'i or that I was a Baha'i, so I may as well declare as a Baha'i. I was still working at Warner Brothers, and it was maybe three years later or so. We were shooting a movie called The Exorcist, and that kind of ushered me into making a decision about going into something different than where The Exorcist was taking us. <laughs> so <laughs> it was either going to be Islam or, or the Baha'i faith. I, I don't know if I chose it, but 
maybe the faith chose me. So I called Walter up and I, I told him, I said, um, I'm, I'm ready to declare. Now, by this time, Walter was on the road. They were traveling and they had a, they had a nightlife and I had a day life. So I called him at nine o'clock in the morning. They were completely asleep. So that was like three o'clock in the morning for him. He put the declaration card in the mailbox. I got on my bike, rode down to his house because he lived not too far from the studios. Got the declaration card out. I signed the card at Warner Brothers, and I made 12 copies of the card just in case a copy got lost or I couldn't remember where it was. I wanted to make sure that I could prove that I was a Baha'i at that time. <laughs> Del, what were your religious leanings before you ran into the Baha'i faith? I grew up a Baptist Christian, and my father was a deacon in the church. My mom, she was a choir director, and she had five children, and we were all singers in the choir. I have a couple other family members, brother and a sister, who were professional musicians. But as we were growing up, we were Christian. And then when I left the nest in search of my own self, my own calling, I went to California from Ohio. At that time, my sister had, she had already been in California, and she um, was a professional musician during that time, so I went out to stay with her, and she took me around, and we went, and I went on the circuit with her for a little while. I was just watching while she was performing in different clubs and doing different things, and, and then I ran into a guy who was in the Church of Scientology, and it made a lot of sense. And so I started researching it, then something about it was more of the same that I had experienced in my own personal life as a Christian. And I looked at different aspects of Christianity, not even knowing that I was searching for anything, really. I was just interested in what other people did and why they practiced the way they practiced. And, and maybe I was looking for some place, a soft place to land that wasn't so different than where I was. So I looked at different sects of Christianity, and none of that suited me. And then I looked at Islam. That had a lot of really good discipline to it. But as I practiced it, it I felt more radical. I felt like I had a place, and I felt like it really made me feel good about myself and the brotherly love that I got from the community in itself, especially from the men. And I felt a real cohesive bond with men, and especially African-American men, because at that time we were called black Muslim if we were black. We were black everything if we were black. So I was attracted to it because I had that camaraderie, and I also believed in Muhammad. So that wasn't a stretch for me, but that violent piece kind of caused me to continue my, my search. I knew it wasn't right, and I knew that the segregation of people was not right. In other words, blacks over here, whites over there, and I was looking for something different, which I didn't still didn't know that that's what I was looking for. Because in my own family tree, there's a multicultural of folks. We have the second oldest African-American family reunion in the United States, and in that family, you will find whites you will find Native Americans, and you will find African Americans. And, of course, you know, in this generation, the younger generation now, you know, like my son, he's half Persian, so you're going to find some Easterns and, 
and different folks, you know, from the Philippines who are half Filipino and half African American and different things like that. So it's even more diverse than it was when I was growing up. So I have a religion that taught me segregation and taught me that white people were the devil or taught me that Easterners, whatever, and blacks, whatever, somehow it didn't settle very well with me because whenever I looked at my family tree, it made me realize that, well, those people aren't all of those things. Those people aren't bad. Those people aren't negative. We all eat together. We're all the same blood. Then I studied witchcraft, and by this time I was working at Warner Brothers. I had a mentor who would show me witchcraft. And he would show me a lot of the voodoo magic stuff that they had. And I was fascinated by it. Simultaneously, I was studying metaphysics, just becoming a pseudo-intellectual about life and, and, that, and the approach to life. And it was just all up in the head. And it, was just, it wasn't a heart movement at, at this time. It was just a, an exercise in, in mind power or, and power and influence over others. And complete control of myself, learning how to read auras and learning about astral projection and learning how to heal people with your hands and using all of these different ideas to exercise some form of power, which 2020 hindsight, I can look at it and say that, but not at the time. Being immersed in that and simultaneously, you know, shooting the exorcist, you know, you can imagine the dreams that one could possibly have at night. <laughs> yeah. and, and sometimes, you know, people have what's called rude awakenings, which I think I had. Mm. And, and then as I was looking for a way out of this scary place that I had put myself, I went to Walter, who was the person who told me about the Baha'i faith, and I asked if, is there a prayer that could help a person ward off evil? because that's where I was. I felt that my mentor in uh, witchcraft was coming at my soul, and I felt are coming to get me. Mm-hmm. And I also felt that with the exorcist, you know, shooting that, there was so much negativity surrounding my life at that time. I needed something that would match that imaginative power that wasn't really tangible necessarily, but could manifest itself through me in some negative ways. I figured it would probably be prayer. So I got a prayer, and I got some different readings from him. And I also talked to my Muslim mentor at the time, because I wasn't a Baha'i at this time. And I asked for something dealing with witchcraft. Did Muhammad reveal anything that would help ward off the evils of witchcraft? And he said he sure did. So he gave me some kind of prayer. I don't remember what it was. But I said that prayer. The other book that I had was Gleanings, and I read Gleanings, and I said those prayers that he gave me. Just for the benefit of our listeners, Gleanings is a compilation of writings of Baha'u'llah. And it's the actual writings of Baha'u'llah. You know, it wasn't someone else talking about what Baha'u'llah said. It was Baha'u'llah saying it himself. Of course, that obviously had more of an effect on my spirit than I probably could ever imagine to this day. I I allowed myself to believe in it. Mm -hmm. And that was a crossroad to me. That was I made a clear transition from the thinking that God created a power 
greater than his own or that would even equal his own power. Prior to that, there's this whole concept of heaven and hell and good and bad and, and the devil and God, Satan and God. So growing up as a Christian, believing that Satan has incredible power and just thinking about it from the heart or, or just feeling thoughts about it, that it was equal to that of God. So you just make a choice. You're either going to do good or you're going to do bad in life. And they both were very powerful positions. And one place you go forever and ever and ever is hell. And the other place you go forever and ever and ever is heaven. So they were always equal and parallel in my mind as a Christian growing up. And it, and that was always associated, always associated good and bad, evil and so forth with that parallel. So they were not necessarily equal in reality, but as far as my own personal experience, I didn't, to burn forever was enough for me. I don't need to know more than that. <laughs> so whether it's equal to God or not. But I made a clear switch at this time. And I, then I realized that there is no greater power than the power and the love of God, and that God was the creator of all things, which means God created, if there is a hell, God created hell. If God wanted to do something different with hell, God had the power to do that with hell. Satan had no power over God. And so with that realization that God was more powerful than Satan, or than witchcraft, or than evil, or than anything else, that was surrounding me at that time. It was a great comfort, and I studied profusely and prayed profusely to save myself at that moment and at that time, during that period of time. It must have lasted for a few months that I prayed profusely, not knowing how to pray, really. But I did, and I felt like I overcame, and I never went back to that subject. The exorcist never bothered me any longer. It was not powerful. Uh, witchcraft was no longer powerful, had power over me. So I think I had a clear transformation in my soul, my heart and my soul, prior to becoming a Baha'i. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, I almost lost my job while I was becoming a Baha'i. Someone gave me a book while I was still working at Warner Brothers here, and I'm reading this God Loves Laughter. Uh, let's just give a little background that God Loves Laughter is a book by uh, William Sears, and it, it's the story of Bill Sears growing up and sort of discovering what spirituality is in a very humorous way. And, you know, Mr. Sears, I've heard him speak, and I knew that he was a radio announcer, so Mr. Sears, having been in the same industry that I was in, was very attractive to me. And not only that, he had that old-style radio voice uh, with their voices deep and resonant and, and they're talking very fast and very profoundly and you know it's like okay that's a real radio announcer and he was a sports announcer at that so you had to be real good you know like the Howard Cosell kind of guy and Mr. Sears you know I was hearing his voice while I was reading the words of his book God Loves Laughter it was a dream like story something I always wish I could have had someone need while I was growing up, I could sit on, and they would and they would tell me about life, and they would tell me about the pitfalls of life, and they and just someone who loved you that much that you could just sit on. Because my father really never talked to me, you know. We never had a conversation like Mister Sears and his. And I think it was his grandfather that they had. But nonetheless, I'm laughing at my desk uh, or giggling 
and not paying attention to the fact that my supervisor was somewhere nearby and saw me reading the book instead of doing my work. And so he came over and he very nicely said I shouldn't be reading on the job. I said, yeah, you're right, you're right. So I, I put the book away. I, I had no intention of getting that book out again. But I got the book out again. <laughs> and, and this time I had the book in my desk drawer and it was laying flat in the drawer, and I was looking down at, like I was looking down at a timesheet. Our department was a department that paid all the actors and also paid all the employees of Warner Brothers, of the Burbank Studio. So, you know, we had lots of money running through that place. And I remember holding a check in my hand one time of, of John Wayne, and it was it was six figures, and I, I, just, I just looked at it, it was like six, Five, something, 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 something. I'm going, okay, I can't even relate to that number. So it didn't even matter to me, the numbers or anything, because you get used to it. But it was a lot of responsibility. So it was very important. It was a very important position to be in or even to be in that department. He almost saw me reading the book again because I was still laughing, and, and I just could not put it down. Nor could you laugh quietly. <laughs> no, I, I tried to laugh quietly, but I, I was chuckling by now, and I was really being attentive to, trying to be attentive to, you know, where he was in, in the office. But, yeah, it was a scary moment. At the same time, it was a very exciting moment because something was happening inside of me that I could not, I could not slow it down. And I didn't want to. It felt too good, and it felt like things were coming together in my life in such a way where I was getting a certain kind of clarity about who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. But I didn't know that at the time. So as I look back on things, I, I realized that that all had a place in the grand scheme of things. So I, when I did finally become a Baha'i, it was not long after having read God Love Laughter and I still had that joy in my heart. I think the, the tipping point for me was going to one of the firesides over there at the Balkans, which Gary Balkan is he's still in California, he's very well known. They had a big they had a big family. I was, I felt very close to them. I went to a fireside and I don't know, England Dan at the time it was England Dan John Ford Coley. It was John Ford Coley's wife who was at the fireside. And she was pregnant. And she gave an example of Life after death, you know how Baha'i, what Baha'is believe in life after death. The example was so beautiful, and it was so realistic because she was pregnant, and I could envision that baby in that womb world, and I could see that baby kicking around, not knowing what to do with those hands and feet and eyes and nose and all this, and not realizing that it would be useful tools once it dies from the womb world and born into this world. But the baby was only interested in being fed, getting free nourishment, and getting a free taxi ride. I'm looking at this presentation of life after death as she's relating it to the baby dying from the womb world and being born into this world. We have to develop spiritual qualities in this world so that when we get to the next world, those spiritual qualities, arms and limbs and spiritual insights and whatever it is that we are supposed to be developing, well, then we will see, we will know, and it will be the world of reality for us. It will be the world of understanding, and then we'll, you'll be able to use those instead of being handicapped by not having developed those spiritual qualities. 
it was at that moment that no matter what anyone else said, I only heard, it was almost like birds singing. I didn't understand any words anybody was saying. I just looked at them and I was smiling, but I was already gone. So I had no idea what they were talking about after that point. And maybe I don't know how, how many days it took for me to, but I, I, I had made a decision that I was a Baha'i at that time. So that was the tipping point. That, that brought me all the way up to the point of getting to Walter a call. And just that was just logistics, giving right. Walter a call sure. and give me a, a declaration card sure. so I can sign. I was already a Baha'i in my own heart, and I just didn't want anyone to think that they could take that away from me. Mm. So I, I, that's why I made so many copies mm. of the card. That's pretty much the story of how I became a Baha'i. So that's all leading up to what happened after you became a Baha'i. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I used to hear a lot of people like Joan Balkin and Mark Towers and Dell, who are these people? You say they're um, well known, but these people are are Baha'is who were actors and movie stars. I and see. they lived in they lived in Burbank, they lived in Hollywood, and they also lived in Boy Willows lived in Beverly Hills. And many other Baha'is who were actors and movie stars that I, I just knew because I was in that industry. They had all said that they gave up the industry, which is which, which means the movie industry, for Baha'u'llah. I never understood what they meant by that. But I did understand that the movie industry for me did not mean much to me at this time because of the corruption behind the scenes. And all I could do was focus on that. I thought maybe there must be something better than this. Because, yeah, the show must go on. And, and once, the, once whatever you're there for is produced, whatever production you're there to, to produce is, is complete and it's beautiful on the silver screen, it's what takes place to get that to happen. So it's all the vaccine activity, all the interaction, the worldly interaction, the materialism, just the whole focus on things that were completely opposite of what you'd find in Baha'i guidance, of what you want your life to be like in order to achieve the goals of the Baha'i community, which is to unite the world. So if you're going to unite the world, chances are you can't unite the world through movies like The Exorcist and all the things that it takes to make The Exorcist happen. I mean, if that's what you think, then that's... If you can do that, great, but I, I understood when they said... They gave up the industry, or that aspect of the industry, for Baha'u'llah. This is when I started thinking about my direction, redirecting my life from media or from the movie industry. And then I went into music because I thought that was going to be better and it's going to be different. So I lost interest in the movie industry and I went into music. It wasn't really a big jump for me because I had already been into music just going back to something that I felt was familiar. And I was very young at the time, so I was very enterprising, and I wanted to do something with all that energy and that so-called expertise. So I went out and tried to do that. That's when I formed a group. You know, we were getting pretty hot, and then I also was a part of another group that was a very professional group. You know, I didn't stay with that for very long because that was just like the movie industry behind the scenes. There was drugs everywhere. 
there were women everywhere, lined up everywhere. Even if you go to the drugstore, they were there. They were everywhere you went because you're becoming known and, I guess, famous and so forth. And then there were these high expectations that you be normal compared to whatever normal is in that industry for behind the scenes. You know, what are you going to do, man? You're going to eat that sub sandwich? You're going to come and join us, you know? So I just couldn't be one of the guys. Right. You were on the outside. So, yeah. So I, I just couldn't do that. I was. I, they called me a health food nut. So I just didn't. It just didn't work out for me in the social world aspect of, of that. So I recall I interviewed Sylvan Cross because at this time I had interviewing skills, and so I was interviewing everybody. I interviewed England, Dan, and, and John, Fort Coley, and, and, uh, and not just them as Baha'is because they were, they were Baha'is, but I interviewed people who I knew who were not Baha'is who were very famous. And I asked them questions like, how is it that, you're able to stay on the road or stay in this business and also maintain a family life and maintain a sense of morality. The answer that I eventually, I, I think I boiled everything down to was you had to have a really good support team. And the support is going to be more like family. And if you don't have a family yet, it has to be a, a group of people who you truly believe in, who believe in you and your standards. And they also understand the industry, and they also understand what you're doing. That was something that made a lot of sense to me. And I realized that I was not well-equipped to be able to, to manage without that kind of support. So then that led you to the next phase? After I got off the road with the other musicians, well, the way I ended up at the House of Worship was I, I didn't... And, the, and the just group. excuse me, Dell, just for one second. I just want to give people a, a background of the, when you refer to the House of Worship. That's the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, the only House of Worship currently for the Baha'i faith in North America. The way I ended up in Illinois was I decided instead of just hanging out and waiting with these guys and going to bars or whatever it is they want to do, uh, practice and do all that stuff. I was going to do something else, so I went to the Baha'i House of Worship. When I got there, it was so beautiful and so magnificent. It was so serene and so spiritual and so awesome that I wanted to just be there, and I felt like I needed to be there. So I asked them if there was something that I could do so I could just hang out and be here so I could go in and pray whenever I wanted to pray. And then eventually they gave me this job. It was a security job where I would have the keys to the place at night. And I just knew I was in heaven. Uh, I didn't care what kind of work. Give me work in the gardens. I'll prune your tulips or I'll wash the dome or I'll do whatever it is. I'll do it. I didn't, it didn't matter. I was there like 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning every night for as long as I wanted to be there. And I would go into the house of worship, and I would write songs, and I would pray, and I would meditate, and I was in a constant state of bliss. People would come to the house of worship on their motorbike, and they would come with their picnic blankets and, and their families, and they would come in skinny dip, and, and I was able to talk to them, and you know they just felt like my kind of people, but we could talk about spiritual things in that environment. 
I kind of forgot about the other life that I was living as I was going through this. And eventually, I ended up with another job position there in the house of worship. It was a little bit more administrative, but it also made me realize that I had taken myself out of the music scene. And then I just decided that I wasn't going to do that. I didn't decide that I was going to do it either by myself or with anyone else, but I, I was working on a CD, so I thought I would do something as I was writing music in the Cornerstone Room, which is the, the room that was the the place where the, it was the first, it was the beginning of the construction of the Mother Temple of the Baha'i Holy Place. And there was a, a rock, a big stone that was dropped by this lady uh, who was, uh, before the temple was built, she was carrying this wagon and she wanted to make a contribution. And she, and she so she took a little bit of money and bought this, this big stone from this builder and this was her contribution, and it dropped out of the wagon that she was carrying it in in this spot. And, the, and the, so that, that was a perfect spot. So they left it there, and they built the house of worship around that cornerstone. I'd love to go into the room that was made around the cornerstone and just sit there for hours and hours and pray and write songs, music to, to the prayers. And, and then I would do my little Paul Horn thing with my flute and it's all kind of stuff. I, I was just in heaven. I ended up staying there for three years. I had no idea I'd be there that long. There was a gentleman by the name of David Rope. He served on the international administrative body of the Baha'is of the world, which is called the Universal House of Justice. And every now and then, he would come to the United States, and Chicago would be one of his stops because Chicago or Evanston, Illinois, is where the Baha'i National Center is. It felt very purposeful to be there. It felt like it had a lot of meaning. It is feel like you're, you're making a contribution to humanity for everything that you do. It's just one of the most meaningful feelings that I think I had ever had in my life up to that point. So what happened was Mr. David Rule would come through, and I was, uh, I was quite young at the time, and he said, in the future, we're going to need Baha'i youth. We're going to need youth to go and learn radio because someday we're going to have these Baha'i radio stations. I said at that time when he gave that talk, I said, this is what I want to do then. I want to prepare myself for that. So I went back to school and started studying this communication with the, with the radio and TV bent to it. And then uh, I forgot why I even started that aspect of the career because it was years later that I heard that there was going to be a Baha'i radio station in the U.S. that was going to be built. And I had no intention of being a part of that. And then someone said, Dale, you should apply. It just happened that I did apply, and I got the job. And then when I, I got the job, I moved from incredible, vibrant town of Chicago, the whole area. I was living in Wilmette, but still, you know, we call it all Chicago. Just like L.A., you call everything L.A., even though it's all the suburbs and everything. And I moved to this rural community, Florence, South Carolina, and worked in Hemingway, which is even even more rural. But that's where the Baha'i radio station was being built, at the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute School. And they were having a radio station there at the school, which was a nonprofit organization. The radio station was not built. So now all of my abilities 
would have to be put to use. And I felt somehow I felt well-equipped. I never felt well-equipped for anything, but I felt well-equipped to help get that radio station built and on the air. And it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. Why was it so hard, Dell? Because it was many tests and difficulties. It's like you're giving birth to an institution. Giving birth, there's birth pains. And you know something good is going to come out of it, but when you're going through it, when you're the one going through that labor, and it was very labor-intensive, and it was emotionally intense for anyone and everyone who was involved in the process. It was also kind of scary because it was the first of its kind in the U.S. and North all of North America, and everyone, all Baha'is and all institutions were watching its development and praying for its success. So you could not fail. You had to succeed. There was a lot of pressure to succeed. And we did, but we had no idea that we would. We just we just did what we had to do. And one of the most difficult things, once we got the station aired, well, before we got the station aired, it looked like we wasn't going to raise the money to get the tower built. Trickle and then William Sears got on his campaign. He called it With Love Goes Involvement. It was the, it was the call letters of Radio Bahat. It was mm-hmm. WLGI. So he called it, which was very clever, and once he got in, we raised a million dollars. By the time we were going on the air, was the boat of the Bob. The Bob was a forerunner of the Baha'i faith of Baha'u'llah. His ministry lasted for about six years before Baha'u'llah, but his, the purpose of his ministry was to prepare the way for Baha'u'llah, just the same as the way John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. The Bob prepared the way for Baha'u'llah, so he was to tell everyone of the one who was to come. And so on the birth of the Bob, which is a holy day for Baha'is, the radio station went on the air for the first time. And the message that was pre-recorded was pre-recorded by William Sears. And he did the call signs and the call letters. And he said, he says, this is Radio Baha'i, WLGI 90.9 FM. And that went out over 50,000 watts of airways, and we had tears in our eyes. Now, it's really interesting, Dell, that it was William Sears' book that led you to the Baha'i faith in some way, and here he is inaugurating this project that you worked so hard for, for the Baha'i faith. I never correlated that. Uh, thank you. That is a very interesting uh, correlation. And what we had to do, the, the studio for the radio station wasn't even built. It was just a tower. We went up with a tape recorder and connected the tower and that tape recorder so that we could broadcast that message over the air. Unbelievable. (laughs) So so we had to do it very carefully. (laughs) So it was like duct tape and tape recorder. (laughs) Yeah, we we had Elmer's glue and duct tape, and it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was. It was absolutely fascinating. And interestingly enough, prior to the station going on the air, was also I was getting married at the same time. So in the background of our wedding photos was the guys who were building the tower. They were swinging on, on the tethers 
on the rope because that's what they do and they love doing it. But they were swinging on those ropes way up in the air in the background. And it was just amazing, the whole process. And it was very emotional. Every step of the way was an emotional experience. I don't think if I had the choice to do that again, I would really think twice about it. I mean, some things you'd say, how would I ever give up that experience? I would never think twice about not having an experience of pushing the button on something so incredible for the first time in history in the United States or even in North America, you know, starting a radio station here, a Baha'i radio station at that. That would affect the entire area broadcast region and everybody in it, and it did. But it also affected British radio and British airways because they aired a lot of this excitement and, and the, the inauguration and the grand opening as well. So it really was a historical moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, would I do it again? If I could pick and choose my moments, I certainly would. I wouldn't hesitate to do it again. It was a very difficult time of life, so it was a huge sacrifice. And in my spiritual thinking, I wouldn't hesitate to do it. But in my loneliness and in my material thinking and in my selfishness, I'm thinking, man, well, that was a very painful experience. At the same time, it was the most uh, glorifying experience, and, and it's, it's just heart-wrenching. So I, I don't know. I'm just stuck with that. I don't know, but I, I just kind of think if the opportunity presented itself, I probably would. Baha'is believe that we're all one people, and that all religions agree, and that the messengers of God do not contradict each other. They're all from God. And so, therefore, they're all one. And so, when we were going out on the in the community around the broadcast region, we had to make sure that in the Christian belt, in the heart of the Christian belt, that people understood, that the community knew that we were friends, that we were not there to do anything other than to be friends and to educate the community and to share, obviously, you know, whatever it was that we, the message that we wanted to share, the spiritual aspect of, of the teachings of God. But the social aspect of it was very difficult for the community, and they would express that by shooting bullets through the building. Sometimes people were in the building. One time a bullet went right past my head. They would express that by beating and bombing our mailbox, our P.O. box that was sitting out on the street, and cars could come by and they could whack it with baseball bats and or put dead animals inside. They would show their distress by leaving very threatening voicemails on the answering machines to our administrator and creating terror. And then it took a year or so for a lot of this stuff to calm down. I was the person who was going around to every single person's house knocking on their doors because we were on a non-commercial educational band which interfered with their only TV stations that they had in the rural area because they were doing satellite. So, and everybody was getting Radio Baha'i on their Channel 6. So I had to go and put filters on all of their TV stations, and I got to meet just about everybody in the whole area. So that way we were able to talk to them, tell them about the Baha'i phase, and to let them know that we were there as friends and to help you know, with anything that they need help with, and that, that there's, this was their station, too. So, you know, we were able to, to really give the message one-on-one, and also we repeated that over the airways, as well as doing our own programming and doing Baha'i Feast and different Baha'i holidays, and just, just acknowledging who we are at the same time, uplifting who they are. 
What a story. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Del Campbell, a Baha'i who was a professional musician and who worked in the movie industry and started up the Baha'i radio station WLGI in Hemingway, South Carolina. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.